Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. It's everywhere. It's within your families, your neighbors, your friends. Why do you want to kill yourself? I didn't want anybody else to have to do or go through what I was going through. You tried to kill yourself? Yeah, I did. Was there anything anybody could say to you to stop you? No. That's, that's ultimately what brought me to that point was that pain that I, you, you can't medicate that pain. I didn't, I couldn't get rid of it. And it caused exhaustion to the point where I couldn't ever escape it. I was so tired of uh, being in pain physically and mentally and nobody could tell me or anything or, or show me anything that can make it go away. And ultimately in, in my mind at that point, I just, the only way I could be pain free was to leave. First responder suicides have reached an all-time high, epidemic proportions. Doug Monda walked to the brink of that, twice. His story is one of overcoming pain, depression, PTSD, and the isolation that those can create to survive and thrive. Street crimes, SWAT team, sniper, military contractor, narcotics officer, undercover operations. You name it, and if there was a dynamic cop job to be done, Doug did it to the highest level. Before he was a lawman, Doug was a world-class athlete, playing professional soccer and later as a national champion triathlete. I ended up playing uh, professional for the, uh, the New Jersey Stallions. Uh, Orlando City, back then, they were called the Orlando Lions. We're talking 30 years ago. So I, I played for them and um, ended up playing for Miami and uh, in New Jersey. That was really it. But, you know, as age was coming on, I, I started to kind of, you know, get out of it. I mean, getting older, there was, you know, back then there was no money in it. You could have made the same amount of money, you know, working at Walmart. And because um, actually my biggest year was like a 30000 contract. And I was like, man, this kind of sucks for what I got to do for it. So that's kind of, you know, where that started to end, and I started to pick up more in the triathlon. And uh, my coach, who, when I first met him, you know, many years ago, he, he was my neighbor. And he was a runner, you know, marathon runner. He had done triathlon. And, and I told him one day, I go, man, I, you know, I'm going to retire from soccer. I'm thinking I'm going to run a marathon. I was a runner in high school, cross country. And I was super fast. That's really what kind of paved my way as an athlete, as a soccer player, most teams picked, my, picked me up because of my speed. I had this crazy speed for, you know, for a guy my size. 
And um, so anyway, I, you know, he said, okay, you want to run marathon? He goes, meet me here at five o'clock in the morning. Same guy. And so I did, you know, and six months later, I did the Ironman out in California. It was in Oceanside, California. And uh, I was hooked. And I just started, it was it, every week, every weekend, traveling, competing. And, uh, you know, I went to international games and I, I placed in international games. I won the U.S. championship. Um, and then it just evolved from there until uh, until the day came where I wasn't as good as the guys were. You know, even back then, there wasn't a whole lot of money in the sport, not enough to raise a family. So uh, that's kind of when I took my direction towards law enforcement. Doug's policing career was spent with the Cocoa, Florida Police Department. So I started, I got um, recruited um, to go on their, you know, by their SWAT guys out of the, in the police academy. And um, it was the city of Cocoa. So a lot of people, because I live in Cocoa Beach, but I work for a town called Cocoa, which is like two towns over. It's, you know, I live on the beach. This is, you know, uh, 15, 20 miles inland and it's pretty much uh, one of the per capita, I think, this year they were number six for violent crime, you know, most violent city in the nation. And, uh, you know, about 20,000 people, 17,000 are government houses, Section 8. So this is a pretty rough area. But the first thing right out of the gate is I got put on a street crimes unit. Um, and that's where I spent most of my career. And, and the SWAT team. So when I made the SWAT team, they needed a sniper. And I was like, yeah, man, you know, I'm a good shot. I'm a country redneck boy, you know, grew up shooting guns. And I knew I was a good shot. Plus, I had the mentality to do the job, you know. And um, we were really, really active SWAT team. I mean, you know, uh, two two to four times a week, easy type of stuff. And um, so I, I took the job as a sniper, went to a couple of sniper schools, and um then next thing you know, I went to uh, the Marine Corps, and it was just my SWAT commander at the time. He was just one of those guys. The Marine Corps was putting on a scout sniper school at the Black, out at Blackwater, you know, Blackwater facility back in the day, and um, I got invited to go. And so I did. I went, and, um, you know, I kind of stayed there and did that whole thing for a while. And um, when I came out, you know, obviously I went back to work, you know, um, about somewhere in that era, I went to a drug unit, um, you know, from street crimes, a drug unit. And um, I uh, continually, you know, I, I, you know, I, I graduated, you know, with my stuff from Blackwater and uh, rode that train out for a little while. And uh, that was about it, you know, you know, how, you know, how that type of stuff goes. Doug was a part of the law enforcement response to Hurricane Katrina. What he saw and experienced shocked even a grizzled lawman. So anyway, jump a couple years, you know, quite a few years um, into my career. I continually did the same thing, you know, um, in my career. I did, my whole career was, you know, SWAT stuff, gang unit stuff, task force stuff. Um, and a uh, couple little, like, bumps in the road, you know, at, like any cop, including yourself. You know, the shooting, the shootout. The, you know, the death, the carnage, the stabbings, you know, I was, I was getting this, man, like, you know, all the time. No big deal. You know, I'm a highly disciplined, highly trained, dedicated guy. Really wasn't a big deal. And then just 
stuff started to affect me differently during the career. So I got, um, one of the main things was I got um, sent to Hurricane Katrina and I was up there doing what all the other cops were doing and, and saw what most people did on TV. But I also saw a lot of stuff that nobody saw on TV. And I experienced, you know, it was, it was different, it was different than what I was used to. Um, you know, it's one thing to be in combat or, or anything like that. You, you know what you're up against. But there, the people were different. There was uh, carnage and lack of humanity. People robbing and stealing and dead people floating down the streets. And it, it was just pretty much insane. I'd never really experienced it. But what affected me was the lack of humanity that I experienced there. I didn't realize people would actually treat people the way they did in that capacity or that type of environment, especially after something as radical that took place as that hurricane. And I came back to work and, you know, wasn't, you know, didn't affect me, you know, to where I couldn't work, but I guess it left an imprint, an imprint and I just wasn't aware of it at the time. And then for whatever reasons, after I came back from that, I started getting injured all the time. A dramatic line of duty injury started his decline. Isolation is a very dangerous environment to live in. In the solitude of his recovery, the cumulative effects of what he'd seen and done mounted, leading Doug into two failed suicide attempts. You know, my, my favorite thing to do is to swim, bike, and run, and surf, man. You know, I'm a, I'm a Cocoa Beach surf kid, so if I'm not surfing, I'm swimming, biking, or running. And um, I started getting hurt, and, you know, it was, first thing was, you know, I blew my shoulder out. And then it was, I broke my hand. And then for whatever reason, I kept re-breaking my hand for like a year straight, um, really bad. And then it was, you know... Um, another injury and stitches and you know and I was the type of guy like and I would get I'd, ha I'd have multiple stitches in me or whatever and I'd go to work the next day I wasn't a work comp guy or calling out sick I, that just wasn't how I was and my mentality was I couldn't let my SWAT guys be without me if they were going to go to a fight I was going to go fight with them I wasn't going to not go with them. you know I took that stuff uh, really serious and even day to day work so um, then, then the pinnacle was um, I'm at work one day. We're in a we're in a chase. There's a, a, a truck driving through neighbors, trying to run people over, driving through yards. And um, so I get behind the truck with another car. I was in a, a I didn't have a camera up, and I didn't have that equipment, but the guy behind me did. So I I went with him in the chase, and the car wrecked. I thought the guy was going to get out and run, so I got out of my car, and when I did, he kind of whipped the, you know, he started the truck up again and drove it straight at me like he's going to run me over. So in, um, I, I, I went to, you know, I'm looking at the windshield of the truck coming at me, and I go, man, I'm just going to shoot this guy as soon as he gets a little closer. I mean, I'm dialed in. I can't see anybody driving the truck, but I can see the steering wheel, the big Dodge Ram truck. So right before I started to shoot this guy, a little head pops up behind the steering wheel, and it's an 11-year-old kid. And so obviously it, it flipped me out. I didn't shoot. He ended up hitting my car into me, which pinned me into an oak tree. 
So at that point, I sustained a head trauma and ruptured a bunch of vertebrae, a disc in my back. Well, typical me, I'm training, I'm working through it. It gets horribly worse to the point where I can't even barely walk. Um, and needless to say, I have to have some major reconstructive surgery. And I end up leaving work, going home, and I'm, I'm out. I can't even barely walk. You know, I went from, you know, from wheelchair to walker, um, had all this radical surgery, and I'm sitting on a couch by myself. Um, I'd already gone through a radical divorce with my wife. I'm sitting on the couch. So I was this guy my entire life who traveled at 100 miles an hour, 80 hours a week, you know, eight hours a day training, triathlon on top of working. And I'm on a couch. I can't move. I'm all by myself. And uh, my mind just started going haywire. And what took place was, Everything that I encountered over the um, you know previous ten years or however long it was just started coming to surface, and I started thinking about it every day. And you know, I was uh, you know I was being told I'm never going to work, I'm never going to run again, and you know I could very well end up on a wheelchair or walker the rest of my life. And, and I'm thinking in my head like, there's no way in hell I'm going to live like that. And, you know, I'm here to serve, man. I'm here to use it from at, at, at the highest capacity. And, um, you know, I started drinking because I couldn't take pain medication. I still to this day can't. It makes me real sick. So I started drinking, and obviously that didn't make things any better. And uh, depression kicked in. I was suffering, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was suffering from PTSD. And um, it just, you know, make a long story short, I ended up one day, man, I just couldn't take it. I was in an argument with my girlfriend at the time and my neighbor and my friend, and I just pulled my gun out um, and put the gun to my head and pulled the trigger. Thank God for God. Thank God for the way it turned out. It didn't work. Um, you know, so I'm here to tell the story. And, um, you know, I tried to deal with it. I tried to get the help, you know, on my level, and it just didn't get any better. Um, I had a second attempt that was kind of, you know, I'm jumping ahead probably six months to a year. Um, I was going to do it at, you know, I was at work, and, and I guess my guys at the time, my SWAT team and my boss, they knew something was really wrong with me again. And um, so they did, like, an interdiction. And um, that interdiction was about five minutes after I was on my way to drive to a, hiding spot we had where we smoked cigars at work and I was on my way driving there I got interrupted by one of my closest friends at work and um, so I ended up headed back to the office and that's when they were there to intervene so you know by the grace of God again man I you know I didn't do it. Doug was lucky he worked for a chief who valued his officers and understood that Doug was worth the extra effort it would take to keep him around. And when I came back to work my chief, um, who was one of my former SWAT guys, and my, he was my boss in dopes. We had a great relationship. We were good friends. And he had, he was the chief like three days. And he just was like, hey, man, we got to get you help. Man, we want our guy back. And, 
He said, I promise you, man, if you go get help, you can come back to work. Because if you don't, I can't let you work like this. Because I was crazy, man. I'm, you know, I'd lost my mind even when I went back to work. And I was doing stuff that no cop was doing out there. And if a cop did what I was doing, they'd be fired or, you know, they'd be indicted. And, you know, I was just doing radical stuff on the streets by myself, fighting and, you know, just don't deal and crap. And, and my guys were just so concerned. So they, they, sent me away to a hospital to figure out what was wrong with me, and that's where I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD and depression and, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And uh, so they sent me away to a treatment center, and I went to treatment center and, uh, you know, kind of kind of had a nice time out and uh, got my kind of got my act together and um, came back home. And uh, went back to work. You know, my, my work was my boss. Was like, take some time, you know, get your feet back under you and come back when you're ready. When Doug returned to work, he found that he had become a counselor for others who were suffering. Why? Because he was loved, he was admired, he was transparent, and he was trusted. And um, I went back to work. And when I did... You know, I was I went right back to SWAT and that you know, I had task force work I was doing with all, all the other agencies, uh ATF, DEA, you name it. And um I looked around between my friends, my coworkers, my SWAT team, my Fed guys. I was like, Man, everybody's messed up. I'm not the only one. And I had learned some stuff in treatment, man, and I was like, Man, these guys, they need help. And um and when I did come back, within the first week I was back, people just started calling me, asking me for advice. You know, like, hey, what what they do when you went to treatment? And are you on any medication? And I, you know, I'd be like, yeah, why? And they're like, man, I, you know, I'm having problems sleeping, or I'm depressed. And and then next thing you know, I had bosses from other agencies calling me, going, hey, I got a guy at work I'm concerned about. Can I talk to you? They knew me, you know, from the industry. And that was about the time where I just started helping everybody, and and I enjoyed it, man. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a definitely a cops cop, man. I loved, you know, being around other cops, and it was great to be able to help all my brothers and sisters out there. And um, one of the things I noticed during that was um, most cops weren't getting help because they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford the co-pays, or they couldn't afford to go away to treatment because of FMLA. Whatever the reason was, mostly it was kind of monetarily, and then it wasn't so much the stigma. You know, I mean, it was a little bit, because I don't really like that term, but um, it was more the money. And so, you know, I was I knew I was a guy who was well-known in the community, connected, and so I'm like, man, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna raise some money and help these guys get help. And that's kind of what opened the door for Survive First. And that's really how I started at that foundation. Doug identified a common denominator for first responders needing help: their struggle to find and afford the proper treatment. I went to some friends of mine, a couple of my buddies. They were presidents of IACP, and uh, you know the. They, they were all up there in, in that capacity, FBI and A guys. And I called them up, and I was like, hey, listen, you know, we got a problem that I see, and I need your help. I want to do something. What do you, you know, asking their advice. And, and they were on board, man. Uh, they, were, they were all on board. 
And um, I said, you know, I want to fund this foundation up to raise money. And if a cop needs to get help, he can call up, type, you know, and that was the basis. And so that's what we did. And, um, you know, Karen, my wife, she, I just literally started dating Karen about a week before I did this and got sent away the second go around. I just met her. And so, you know, she kind of evolved through all this with me. Doug and his wife, Karen, established the Survive First Foundation. He made his story public, hoping to inspire others to avoid the issues and setbacks he had experienced. Two of us, um, friends, you know, we just started building this program and, and being kind of like a local resource. And about the same time, I guess, um, you know, people had heard my story and had been on TV and, and a few other places. And so I got asked by a couple people, like, hey, would you come speak to our cops or would you come speak? And and I was like, yeah, sure. You know, if it'll help somebody, I'm going to put my dirt out there because I just don't want any cop to have to go through what I went through because I'm a lucky guy, man. I'm a cockroach. It's hard to kill me. So, you know, I know these other cops that do it didn't, you know, they don't have the luck. So I just wanted to do whatever I could to avoid that from happening to anyone else. So we, we, we built it, man, and we got it up and running, and um, it became a, a, a huge success. Um, and so next thing you know, cops are calling and, and firefighters, and, uh, you know, asking for help. And, you know, we, we had to start raising money. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, how it started. But what we do now is um, now we're at a place where we can provide that help. Um, what Survive First does, and now it's a big, you know, we got boards and people on staff, and so basically, um, we provide all the resources that any first responder or their family um, might need, so if they, they call me up and they just need somebody to talk to, which I do that a lot, that's great. Um, if they're, you know, they need direction or advice on, you know, therapy or counseling, whichever, you know, avenue they're looking or, you know, that's good enough or equal enough to what their need is. Um, you know, we, we've made enough friends and resources that we can point them in that direction. And or if they financially meet the criteria and they need help financially, you know, we can help supplement their co-pays. And then all the way up to um, people who need to go to treatment. Um, the treatment facilities. And, um, you know, so what we've done is we found treatment facilities throughout the nation um, that specifically work with first responders. So we have options for them for that. We can say, hey, you know, what state are you in? Where do you want to go? Well, here's what we have. And, and, and if there's a financial need also, they meet the criteria, then we can even maybe help them get a plane ticket and, you know, help them buy a plane ticket. Whatever it's got to be to get them to get help so that they can recover and live a healthy, happy life, finish their career, and also live a normal, healthy, happy life with their family and friends. That's what we want to provide. And, um, you know, that's the gist of what Survive First does. Doug's faith in God has been his source of comfort. Yeah, you know, God, man, is big in my life. You know, I grew up in the church. You know, I, I grew up, you know, a Catholic family, you know, when I was little. Then, we, you know, being a Southern Florida boy, you know, 
in the Southern Baptist Church, you know, as I got a little older, and, and I've been there ever since, and um, it's weird, you know, I'm a, well, you know me, man, I'm kind of a go-do-it type of guy, and, you know, I always needed that reassurance, you know, where God would ever, you know, would have to come down and slap me upside my head, get me in line, and so when I put a gun to my head and pulled the trigger, obviously, um, God said, no, not, this is on my time, not your time. It's, it's my plan and not your plan. And, you know, after that, that took place, man, it just reaffirmed my, my, uh, my thoughts on, and my beliefs and my trust in, 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 in my faith in God. They're saying, okay, man, just listen, hey, I don't miss. <laughs> I've never had an issue with any of that stuff except for myself. And uh, it just opened my eyes, man. And, uh, I, you know, I thank, thank, I'm grateful, man. I'm blessed to still be here and to do this work. So it was a vital role, man, and I'm grateful for it. And, you know, I was just, uh, just, just truly blessed. Doug's life is full of achievement and regret. I'm grateful and my, for my achievements as an athlete to play at the level I did and to compete in Ironman at the level I did. Um, I, it, that physical athletic, and, and you understand this more than anybody, Jay, um, to play at the level we did, it, it's an honor. It, it's truly an honor. You know, when you're an athlete, you're an athlete. There's weekend warriors and there's athletes. And I, I always loved that I was able to do that. And, um, and, and, and it was an honor, especially now because I can do it, you know, because there's people out there that can't do it. So I was grateful, you know, for, for that type of stuff. I, I, I love that achievement. Um, my chief, you know, if you look at it in a, in a workplace, man, I'm no different than any guy out there, you know. Um, you know, even, even my biggest dope cases and biggest criminals that I took down, I'm no different than the guy that's driving down the road, um, writing tickets or, or, or crossing kids across school. I'm just, you know, that was, I just did my job at a, at a capacity. Um, my, my regrets as an athlete, I wish I would have took better care of myself, you know, and I wish I would have recovered better and I would have trained different, trained smarter. Um, and as a cop um, or as an agent, I, um, I, I wish I would have slowed down also, and I would have took better care of myself, and uh, I, re, I regret that type of stuff in the work capacity, but it also, the, in this career, you know, the scars and not being trained, you know, back when you and I started in this, we didn't have mental health training or any of these, uh, huggy, hu you know, huggy, touchy things, you know, from peer support on down, which are great, we didn't have that, and, um, I wish I would have, you know, I regret not taking better care of myself. And then, you know, also, I've always been such a highly dedicated guy in everything I do. I got to do it to the max. I wish I would have spent a little more time at home, you know. Uh, you know, it's crazy, man. You know, the kids, they grow up and they're gone. And you look back and you go, man, could I have done a better job? Of course, you know. So I'm that type of guy where I'm always second-guessing and always want to do better. And so I wish I would have just treated my family a little bit better and uh, not put them through the hell that I did. So that would probably be my, my biggest regret. Prior to his personal difficulties, Doug had adopted a young boy. 
when the knowledge of his struggles became known, his son was taken away from him. In a true reflection of the man Doug Monda is, and as a demonstration of his character, he makes no excuse and lays no blame as he lives with the heartache of life's circumstances. Through all that, as you know, because you know my story, my friend, uh, you know, losing my son um, through all this. Biggest, biggest regret of my life. Yeah. Hardest thing I deal with on a daily basis, man, is, uh, you know, is, is dealing with that. You know, and if anybody ever knew my story, you know, like when I, when I went through all this, I had adopted a little boy. I had him for three and a half years. And um, when they caught wind of all this, they came and took him back from me and took him from me. And I haven't seen him since. So, you know, it's pretty much, you know, for lack of better terms, ripped my baby after three and a half years from my arm. So it's probably the biggest. If I would have took better care of myself, uh, I wouldn't have that issue I deal with every day. It's a pretty difficult thing to deal with, and especially for a guy that strives on being perfectionist. And, uh, you know, everything I did in my life, as my brother says, you know, I... Uh, I got the gold touch, man, you know, just as an athlete, as my work, and, you know, I just didn't do things wrong, man. I did everything right, you know, I followed the rules and did it all right, but uh, I didn't do that right, and I, uh, you know, I pay. I pay every day for the rest of my life, all day long, so that's another driving factor, because I just, you know, it's crazy you don't think about that type of stuff, and um, you can get away from it. That's one of the driving forces where I'm so adamant about getting in front of first responders and going, hey, man, take care of yourself. And please, you know, just don't end up like me, man. Don't, don't be in this spot. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hurt, you know, heartbroken, hurt soul kind of guy. You know me, Jay. You know, I don't, I don't uh, <laughs> beat to the same drum as most people. Doug promotes a message of self-care and mental preparation for those on the job. You know, I tell every cop I get in front of, every time I get on stage, whatever it is, I tell guys, man, listen, we trained and for years and years how to shoot guns and drive and write reports, the whole gamut. But the most important thing we can do is train our minds. And it was the it, it never hit me till you know twenty years later. But one of my SWAT brothers, man, he every time we were in the band or wherever we were going, didn't matter. He would always, you know, when the red light turned on or we were getting ready to blow out the door and start, you know, go on our thing. He would always look at us and go, sharp mind, sharp sword. And what he was saying was, get your freaking minds right, get your head together, we're fixing to go gunfight. And um, and I would always listen to that, and, you know, I would always be ready. And, and, and that's what I hear every day now, and that's what I tell cops. Because the absolute best thing you can do before you get up and get off to work is get your mind right. It's the most important tool in there. Listen, man, you can train anybody to fight, shoot guns, do all that crap, most anybody. But getting your mind right, that's your task you got to do. You've got to be healthy. You've got to be healthy in your head. Because if you're healthy in your head, your body's going to be healthy. And if your body's healthy, your mind's healthy. And you, you can... 
you can't go into this type of job with a bunch of crap bear, you know, bearing down on your brain and on your mind, your conscious. You really got to focus on keeping your head right. And, and and as you know as I do, man, like when the bottom drops out, if you you ain't got your A game on, you're in trouble. Well, you need to have your A game on every day, all day long in this industry. And it also will benefit you at home as well. When you come home, if you got, you know, if your mind's trained right, you're going to be able to take better care of yourself at home in a civilian life. Because that's a big deal for most cops, that transition of working and family. And so if I had to tell anybody, listen, and I, you know, it's crazy. Um, I didn't realize it at the time. But, you know, I live on the beach, so I got to leave the beach and drive over the bridge into the hood. And every time I would get to the top of the bridge, I would turn my radio off, turn my you know, music radio, whatever, put my phone down, it didn't matter, and I would click, and I'd say, okay, man, it's go time. Cause I knew once I was crossing that bridge, I was step, stepping into a war zone. And that's kind of that same mentality that I would tell guys yeah, you got to be ready for that combat, but you've got to be ready for that mental combat. And if you do take better care of yourself in that capacity, life's going to be a lot easier for you. You're going to be in less trouble, less discipline, less injuries, making stupid mistakes, you know, especially in this, this day and age, you know, everybody's watching you and phones. And so it's just important from A to Z, to make sure you got your mind right before you venture off into the day of this career. Doug Monda is a highly sought public speaker. His mission is to help first responders through his own story, one very few have survived to tell. You can find out more about Doug's foundation at survivefirst.us or contact him directly at doug at survivefirst.us. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.